This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. This past week, my son Charlie came home from school and I said, how did school go today? And he said, well, I had a little bit of a problem in a class. He said that there were three students in the back of the class that were talking and my teacher told them to be quiet and they wouldn't be quiet. And so when they wouldn't be quiet, right before we took a test, the teacher came around on the top of every person's test in the room, wrote minus 20, every person in the class. Now I ask you, Is that fair? Today I'm going to try to convince you from Scripture that God the Father, before time began, chose certain individuals to be saved based solely upon the good pleasure of His will. Let me say that again. Today I'm going to try to convince you from Scripture that God the Father, before time began, chose certain individuals to be saved based solely upon the good pleasure of His will. This doctrine is the second of the five points of Calvinism, and it is known as unconditional election. And right now we are going through a five-part series on each of the doctrines of grace. But before we get into today's message, I would like to see if you were listening last week and give you a little bit of a review quiz. Question number one, true or false? The doctrine of total depravity means that men are as bad as they possibly can be. And by the way, this quiz is provided for you in the insert in your bulletin on the white sheet. Question number one, the doctrine of total depravity means that men are as bad as they possibly can be. The answer to that is false. Question number two, the doctrine of total depravity means that man is not capable of doing any relative good. That is also false. You're two for two. Here's question number three. True or false, the doctrine of total depravity means that every aspect of our lives, that is, our heart and our mind, the things that we do, our actions and our will, has been infected by sin. True or false? That is true. Number four, true or false, the doctrine of total depravity means that man, left to himself, is unwilling and unable to come to Christ for salvation. That is also true. And now question number five. This is concerning today's message. All true Christians, true or false, all true Christians believe in the doctrine of election. That is true. All true Christians do believe in the doctrine of election. And let me explain why that is true. Because all true Christians, by definition, believe the Bible to be true, and since the Bible mentions the word election, therefore every Christian in some way believes in election. Now, different Christians believe different things about election, but all Christians believe in election in some form, since all Christians believe in the Bible. And there are basically two schools of thought when it comes to the subject of election. There are those who hold to conditional election, and there are those that embrace unconditional election. Before I explain the difference between the two, and before I even explain what the word election means as it relates to salvation, 
Let me first review what we covered last week by saying briefly that as we are in this five-part series on the doctrines of grace from a Reformed perspective, uh, these five points are commonly called the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or the Reformed faith. And in the first message last week, we looked at the first point, and that is the doctrine of total depravity, in which I pointed out that as a result of Adam's first sin in the Garden of Eden, mankind fell into sin, and through the one sin of that man, Adam, sin came into the world, and every person is infected by that sin, and it hits us at the point of conception. As a result, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and every intent of our heart is always evil continually. We cannot understand nor comprehend the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to the natural man. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. There is none that does good. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And as a result, our nature is corrupt. We are self-seeking. We are naturally attracted to sin rather than righteousness. And as a result, man left to himself cannot and will not come to Christ for salvation. Man is totally depraved and therefore is in a condition of total inability. Remember, we also said that anybody can come to Christ for salvation anytime they want to. And anybody who wants to be saved can be But according to scripture, nobody will come to Christ and everyone left to himself will never come to Christ. And that, in a nutshell, is the doctrine of total depravity and it is foundational. We're going to come back to it time and time again because if we start with the premise that man is dead, well then God has to do something. And since man is totally depraved, election therefore must be unconditional. But we'll get to that in a second. Next, let's define the word election. And you'll see there's a little outline in your bulletin there, actually in the uh, insert. And um, we're just going to define what election is. And we're going to look at a definition that everyone, Calvinist and non-Calvinist, Calvinists and Arminians can all agree on this. And this is God's choice of who will be saved. That God has elected or chosen some people to be saved. He has not chosen everyone, but that he has chosen some people. Every Bible-believing Christian believes that. How do we know that? Because in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, it says that we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so you see from this, that every Christian believes in the doctrine of election and that this is an election unto salvation. Now you say, wait a minute, I'm new to the faith. I've never really read the book of Second Thessalonians. I've never even heard of election. And you're telling me that I as a Christian believe this when I don't even know what it is. Well, maybe before you walked in here this morning, you had never heard of it. But if now you are a Christian and you have read this now, You believe it. You say, well, I didn't see it in the Bible. I just saw it on this piece of paper. Well, open your Bible. Make sure it's in there. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 13. People will say, I believe that there is an election unto vocation, that there is an election geographically as to where we'll be born. There is an election concerning um, the great things of who will be the kings and the presidents of the earth. But there is not a salvation election. Well, Second Thessalonians 2.13 again says, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. 
That's what the word election means. And everyone would agree on that, Calvinist and non-Calvinist alike. But the fork in the road comes as to whether or not that election is conditional or it is unconditional. And what I would like to do at this point is I would like to stop and pray and ask God to give us grace that we will understand the difference between conditional and unconditional and that God will be glorified in the process. Father in heaven, I am about to embark upon a very, very difficult and very sensitive task, and that is explaining from your word one of the deep things of God, and that is that you are in charge of salvation. Father, I pray on the one hand that I would be very bold and that I would speak my convictions and that I would represent your word. Yet, Father, I also pray that you would give me grace and that I would do so in a way that is loving, in a way that is tender, Lord, in a way that is compassionate and understanding. And so, Lord, I ask for this balance today. Father, I pray for the people. I pray that you would open their hearts, that they would see that you are sovereign. Lord, they would rejoice in that and that they would not resist that. And Father, I would pray that if there is anything which I am about to teach, which is not from you, which is not true, Lord, may it come to nothing and may it soon be forgotten, Lord, for we want to represent you accurately. And so, Lord, the preaching of the word is the means by which you have ordained to call your elect to come to you. And so I pray as the word goes forth today that you will use it to quicken those whom you have elected. And Lord, for those of us that are already saved, Lord, may this be a source of growth for us so that we might rejoice in the God of our salvation, thanking you and praising you for, Lord, you have given us our salvation and may we always be humble and, Lord, may we always be thankful. Help me now as I bring the word in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said prior to the prayer, the fork in the road concerning the doctrine of election is not whether or not God chose individuals to be saved, but it is what is it based upon? Is it conditional or unconditional? Let me explain these two words. Something that is conditional would be when a child comes to the parent and says, may I go to the movies tonight? And you say to the child, yes, you may go on one condition. That is, if you rake the leaves before you go. If those leaves get raked, then you can go. But if they don't, then you can't. There is a condition as to whether or not the child can go to the movies that night. Unconditional is often used in war. When one side will be pummeling the other, they will have them holed up and penned in and surrounded. They will have nowhere to go and they are losing men left and right. And they will raise the white flag and they will wave it and they will offer what is known as an unconditional surrender. That means we quit. We throw ourselves at your mercy. There are no conditions that we ask for. Uh, you have won the battle. You have won the war. We give up. Our, condition, our conditions are no conditions at all, completely unconditional, you win. Well, as a Calvinist, I believe that the Bible teaches unconditional election. That is to say that before time began, God chose certain individuals to be saved based solely upon the good pleasure of his will with no conditions attached. He did not do it based upon any good which he foresaw in that person whom he chose, nor did he choose them based upon any decisions or faith or repentance which he foresaw in those individuals, but rather he chose who he chose because that's who he wanted to save. That is the, doc is the doctrine of unconditional election. That it was purely 100% his choice 
and that it was not predicated in any way or conditioned in any way upon the persons whom he chose. Thus it is unconditional election. Now, the non-Calvinistic or Arminian position of election is this, that God is rich in mercy and that he did indeed choose certain individuals, but he chose them based upon which something which he foresaw in them. In other words, God looked down the tunnel of time and he saw that you would choose him and based upon knowing that you would choose him, therefore he chose you. To which I would say, that is a pretty good argument except for two reasons. Number one, it makes no sense. And number two, it's not scriptural. Other than that, it's pretty airtight. Let me explain what I mean. The non-Calvinistic doctrine of election and predestination stands or falls on one word. The, the watershed, the point where we go different directions comes down to one word, and that word is foreknowledge. Either look in your Bible or look on the sheet that I provided you in the bulletin. In Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, it says, For, for whom he foreknew. Now, the Arminian or the non-Calvinist would read this and say, God knew ahead of time what you were going to do, and based upon that, he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, but it's all based upon foreknowledge, based upon what he knew would happen. Moreover, whomever, moreover whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, meaning saved, and whom he justified, these he also glorified, meaning that they will be in heaven. Um, again, let me explain what they mean when they say God foreknew. Um, that is that God foreknew. For means before and knowledge is to know. Thus, beforehand, God who knows all things knew that you would choose him and based upon that, he predestined you. But even that is a very sloppy way of reading the text because look at what the text says. The text does not say what he foreknew. The text says whom he foreknew. What refers to events and to things. Whom refers to people. And the text says whom. And this concept of knowledge in the Bible, foreknow, knowledge, carries with it the idea of love and intimacy. For example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have begotten a man from the Lord. What does that word know mean in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1? Does it mean that Adam was walking through the garden one day and he saw a woman in fig leaves and he scratched his head and he approached her and he says, Hey, I know you from somewhere. No, that's not what it means at all. It means that they were intimate. Knowledge carries with it the idea of intimacy and love. Here's another example of where the word know means to uh, know in an intimate way. The book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2, speaking of Israel, the Lord says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and therefore I will punish you for your iniquities. Does this mean that God had no knowledge whatsoever? of the Philistines and the Eskimos and the Cherokee Indians and the Egyptians. No, that's not what it means at all. It means that he set his love or he set his affection in a special way upon the Jewish people at that time. But he knew all of them. He knew about all of them. But his love was set upon one 
one set of people, that is the Jews. Well, who are these people? Uh, they are the people that God has set his love on or that he has foreknown. It simply means they were the nation that he had an intimate relationship with. And verse 29 of Romans chapter 8 means that he set his love and affection on certain individuals and he demonstrated this love by choosing to, stay, to save them. Let me give you another clear passage which demonstrates this. It's Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Now, later we'll be looking at the rest of Romans chapter 9 or a bigger portion of it. But for now, we're just wanting to demonstrate that election is not conditional. Uh, speaking of Jacob and Esau, it says, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that or so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, that is to Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Verse 11 clearly, and it's crystal clear, states that the reason why God chose Jacob and not Esau had nothing whatsoever to do with Jacob and Esau themselves. Because they weren't even born yet, and they hadn't done any good, they hadn't done any evil. God had every opportunity in the world in writing this under the inspiration of the scripture through the pen of the apostle Paul to say, it is true, I chose one and not the other, but the reason why I chose Jacob and not Esau is because I knew that Esau would be a fornicator and I knew that eventually Jacob would be a man of faith and therefore I chose Jacob, but that's not what he says. He specifically says, it is not of works, but of him that calls, so that, here's the reason why he did it, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Now many look at this and they say, I am utterly baffled and thoroughly amazed that God would say to a mother with twins in her womb, beforehand, I have loved one and hated the other. Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. But the thing that amazes them is that God would hate anyone. Yet the scripture is clear in many places that God hates certain individuals. It, it might not sit well with you. Uh, let me be very honest with you. When I initially read that and discovered that, it did not sit well with me because I was always taught the cliche that God loves the sin, but he hates the sinner. But the Bible, the Holy Bible, the Word of God, Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, says that God hates all workers of iniquity. So the amazing thing here is not that God hated Esau, but the amazing thing in this passage is that God loved Jacob because Jacob was also a selfish, wicked, deceptive, lying, scoundrel, and rat. Uh, God loving him is much more amazing than him hating Esau. Well, we're going to come back to Romans chapter 9 later, but for now, God specifically says that his choice was not based upon anything in the individuals that he chose. Let's look at another passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4, 5, and 11. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, why did he do it? According to the good pleasure of his will. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, how? According or in accord with, to the counsel of his will. You see, in these verses, predestination is based upon something. 
But it is not based upon the one being chosen. It is based upon the good pleasure of God's will. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to our God. Did God have a reason for choosing those whom he chose? Yes. But we do not know what that choice is. We just know what that choice is not. We know that it was not based upon those whom he chose. He chose whom he chose because that's who he wanted to choose. Here's one more which will refute the doctrine of conditional election. And that is on the back side of the sheet. And it is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. This was our congregational scripture reading this morning. Speaking of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Let's take this verse apart. Notice, when did the election take place? Answer, before time began. Does it say anything at all about why certain individuals were chosen? Yes, it does. God's purpose and God's grace. Does the verse say anything at all? Uh, does it say anything else? Yes. It goes out of its way to say that it is not according to our works. So the verse says that before time began, God chose certain people. It says that he did do it for his purpose and grace. And he did not do it based upon anything that we have done. These verses should hopefully, adequately, scripturally support and demonstrate that God's choice is not in any way predicated upon us. It is not in any way conditional, but it is based solely upon the good pleasure of God himself. Romans 9, Ephesians 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Election is not conditional. But let's just say that what I've said up to this point, you see it, but you're having trouble swallowing it. You're having trouble um, uh, buying it. You're, you're reading it. Maybe you're reading it for the first time. Maybe you're having trouble digesting it right now. Let me see if I can present it to you logically or commonsensically from the scripture. Does it not seem a little bit nonsensical to you that God would claim to have chosen certain people? And indeed, he does claim to have chosen certain people in his word. That we can't deny. Second Thessalonians 2.13, he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. God has claimed in his word that he has chosen people. Does it not seem a bit nonsensical to you that God would claim to have chosen people and designate himself as the elector in scripture, but he, according to the non-Calvinistic Arminian position, wasn't the one primarily making the choice at all. Doesn't that seem a little bit strange? Because if, in fact, he is the one making the choice and we make the choice before he makes the choice or he makes his choice predicated upon our choice, well, then in reality, he's not making a choice at all. You see, Jesus makes it really clear that the primary choice is not ours. You did not choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16. And so it makes God sort of look foolish here. But let me play it out this way. God says in his word, I chose you. And we come back to God and we say, thank you for choosing me. If God is a God of integrity, he must then come back to us and say, no, please don't thank me. 
Because I chose you based upon the fact that you would choose me. And if you hadn't chose me, I never would have chosen you. So please don't thank me for choosing you because in reality it was your choice. You see, in the scenario that God chose us based upon what he knew we would do, in that scenario, God is subordinate to man and God is reacting to man. Now, is it true that, no, that God knows all things, past, present, and future? Yes, that is true. Then we have to ask the question, how does he know these things? You say, well, because he's all-knowing. Well, yeah, but that doesn't answer the question. How is he all-knowing? And the only way that God can be all-knowing, for sure, is if he ordained the future. And if he didn't ordain or decree the future, then how could he possibly know for sure what was going to happen? You see, God knows the future because God ordained the future. And if you believe that God has a perfect knowledge of the future, meaning he knows the future just as well as he knows the present or the past, then it is a logical absurdity to say that before time began, he chose certain individuals based upon what he knew they would do. You see, God looks silly to say that he chose individuals, but you and I both know that he really didn't. Let me explain the absurdity of that. It would be like me standing in front of you. For those of you that are not baseball fans, by the way, I've got some bad news for you. The Yankees won the World Series in October or November, but no cheers, please. But, okay, that, with, that, with that premise, if I were to stand in front of you and to say, I'm going to make a prediction right now. In fact, I'm going to put money on this. And if anybody wants to bet, I'll take any set of odds. Here's my prediction. I'm going to predict that last fall the Yankees are going to win the World Series and they're going to beat the Phillies in six games, and I'm going to put money on that. You see, you can't bet on something after the game is over. You can't predict. And you can't, as God, say, I chose you. He knew I was going to choose him. I chose you. And I'm going to take credit for choosing you, but in reality, it was you that chose me. I can't stand up here and say, listen, I'm going to make a prediction that in 2008, Barack Obama is going to be elected as the President of the United States. I'll bet money on it. You can't talk to somebody very long like that that is predicting the past. You can't predict the past. And if God knows the future as well as he knows the past, he can't claim to have chosen us when we indeed were the ones that chose him. It's just logically absurd. You can't predict that which has already happened. And you can't say that you are choosing that which has already been determined by someone else. God chose certain individuals to be saved based upon the good pleasure of his will, not based upon what he foresaw would happen. That is the doctrine of conditional election, which hopefully, scripturally and logically, I have refuted. But if it has not been refuted yet, let me take one other stab at it, and that is this. Remember last week, we spent the entire time talking about the fact that man is totally depraved. And at the end of the day, being totally depraved means that man is unwilling and unable to come to Christ for salvation left to himself. If that is true, how in the world could we have chosen him if we were dead and we were disinterested and we weren't seeking after God and we didn't understand? You see, if man is totally depraved, then therefore election has to be unconditional. It has to be based upon no conditions at all. In other words, the person who says, I believe in total depravity, but says, I do not believe in unconditional election, is a walking contradiction. That having been said, and let's say that up to this point, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Let me restate the entire position, but I'm going to do so in much simpler terms. 
And instead of saying what we don't believe, I'm going to now be talking about what we do believe. And as always, I will support this with scripture. And that is that we believe in unconditional election. And that is that God, for reasons only known to him before creation, chose or predestined certain individuals to be saved. All whom he chose will go to heaven. And all those that he did not choose will not go to heaven. Now, when I first heard this, as I told you last week, I was, I was not only puzzled or baffled, I was infuriated. Do you mean to tell me that it has already been determined by God who will spend eternity worshiping him and who will be screaming in the lake of fire? Yes, according to the scripture, that's right. It has already been determined. Now, many are angered by this, and my name was at the top of the list. And I said, that is not my God. That's not the God that my parents taught me about. That's not the way that I perceive God. And I continued to say, that is not my God, until I started to read the Bible. And if there is a God, and this God has chosen to communicate with us, and the means by which he has chosen to communicate with us is the Bible, then I would like to demonstrate to you from the Bible that this God claims to have chosen certain individuals and not other individuals, and he did so to the praise of his glorious grace. So, we move on to Roman numeral 2, or letter B, unconditional election. What is it? Well, as I said last week, it starts with an overall understanding of the sovereignty of God, meaning that he is in control of everything, and that includes salvation. Daniel 4.35 All of the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? You read that and you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, it really doesn't seem fair that he does what he wants to do. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, whether you're saved or whether you're lost today, the very last thing in the world that you want is for God to be fair with you. I do not want God to be fair with me. Charlie's sitting there in his classroom minding his own business, sitting there quietly. Twenty-five other students are sitting there quietly, minding their own business. Three students in the back of the room are talking. The teacher says, be quiet. Three students continue to talk. Twenty-five students remain silent. And the teacher says, fine, everybody gets a minus 20. That is not fair. That is injustice. Let me explain something. There are Three things. There is injustice, non-justice, and mercy. What Charlie received from that teacher at Bayside High School was injustice. God is not an unjust God. God does not show us injustice. What God shows us who are saved is non-justice. And there's a dis difference between non-justice an injustice. Let me see if I can explain it this way. You've heard this illustration before if you've been here any length of time. For those of you that are new, you need to hear this illustration. R.C. Sproul, great theologian, great preacher, was a seminary professor. In his class, he gave an assignment to the students and he gave them a due date. A couple of the students came in and they didn't have their assignment finished. He pulled out his grade book and he wrote an F in the grade book because they didn't complete the task on time. The students said, would you please have mercy upon us? We had a really busy weekend. We have a big load with our other classes. Would you please have mercy on us? 
To which Sproul said, that's fine. Pulled out his eraser and said, bring your test in tomorrow. Bring your assignment in tomorrow. I'll grade it then and you won't have anything knocked off. Second time, students come in, don't have their work prepared. Professor Sproul, please have mercy. Please have mercy. Fine, I understand your lives are busy. I'll have mercy upon you. Third time, these students come in. They don't have their assignment. Sproul takes out his grade book, writes an F for the third assignment, and the students got furious, and they said, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's not fair. Sproul said, would you like me to be fair with you? They said, that's all we're asking for is that you would be fair. He said, fine. Pulled out his eraser and erased the first two grades and put an F down there as well. You see, you do not want God to be fair with you. That is the last thing in the world you want. Because if God were to be fair with you, you would be in hell right now. Election and predestination are doctrines of love. God did not have to choose anybody. Consider the angels, Lucifer and a third of the angels from heaven that fell. Consider them. Did God make any attempt whatsoever to redeem them or to save them? No. And the scripture says that they are held in chains under darkness, waiting for the judgment of the great day, that they will be, will be thrown into the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And no one ever looks at the demonic host that has fallen from the angelic realms of heaven to earth and said to God, God, that was not fair. You should have sent a redeemer to save them. You should have worked out a plan of salvation for them. You should have brought them or given them an opportunity to come back into your kingdom. Nobody ever says that God is unfair for that. But yet we say that God is unfair because he chooses certain people and not others. Listen, if when Adam fell, God had said, that's it for the human race. I'm sorry. In one man, all sin. And if Adam, Adam had fallen and God had just stepped back and he had let us go our merry way, he had sent us no information. He had sent us no redeemer. Let me tell you something. God would be worshipped in heaven forever by the angels as being loving and holy and just. He was under no obligation whatsoever to show any mercy whatsoever. But he graciously chose to save some. And every person that he did choose cost him the death of his son. You say, well, it still seems unfair to me. It's not unfair at all. If I'm the governor of the state and I have 10 men that are on death row and they are unequivocally guilty, we have video evidence and signed confessions, they're all guilty and they're all ready to get the lethal injection. And if I, for reasons only known to me, choose to be merciful to one of those men, and give that man a stay of execution, am I being unfair to the other nine by giving them the needle on the gurney? <clears throat> no, I'm not. They're getting what they deserve. You do not want to get what you deserve from God. You have rebelled against him. You have looked at his law and you've said, I will not live for you. I'm going to live for myself. I will not have that man to rule over me. You've stuck your middle finger up at God, not literally, but in your attitude, you've said, I don't want what you have for me. You have rejected Christ. You've gone your own way. And even after you know Christ, you have continued to sin and to sin and to sin. You do not want God to, in the final day, put a ledger down of your good works on one side and your bad deeds on another and say, okay, 
Let's square this up and be fair. You don't want God to be fair. You do not want him to be just. You want God to be merciful. And the doctrine of election is a doctrine of mercy. Let me give you the knockout punch. Last week I told you, Madison Square Garden, Muhammad Ali is fighting against Joe Frazier. Joe Frazier wins it on one left hook. One punch with a left hook, knockout punch, for the doctrine of unconditional election is Romans chapter 9. In my opinion, it's airtight, but let's look at it. Romans 9, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, when you read that, if you're anything like me, you say, well, that's not fair. That was my initial reaction. And Paul anticipates that that's going to be your initial reaction. And so he writes, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And the answer is certainly not. For he says to Moses, this was our congregational scripture reading this morning from Exodus 33:19. God says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. My goodness, it, I don't know of any other way to explain that or to understand that other than it does not depend upon the one who wills or the one who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God says he is the one that will have compassion. He is the one that will have mercy, that it is not up to us. Then Paul uses another example, and this one is of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who is in hell right now. Pharaoh, who resisted Moses, who saw the ten plagues. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, I, God Almighty, have raised you up so that I, God Almighty, might show my power in you through the plagues and that my name might be declared in all the earth. He was using Pharaoh for his own glory, but at the end of the day, Pharaoh is damned. Therefore, if this passage collectively is, is, the, is the left hook, which is the knockout punch, this next verse, verse 18, is the point of contact at which conditional election must go down and unconditional election stands triumphant. And that is, therefore, he has mercy on whomever he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You may not like that. But please don't tell me that you have any trouble understanding what that means. It's crystal clear. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Again, Paul is anticipating that you're going to have an objection. And that objection is for who has resisted his will. In other words, what's the use of trying? Because whatever will be, will be. So uh, if I'm doomed, I'm doomed. Here's the response of the Apostle Paul. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form say to him who formed it? <clears throat> Why have you made me like this? We forget that we are just dust. And that's how we were made. And to dust we will return. We give ourselves far too much honor and far too much credit. We were shaped by God. Yesterday I was with my daughter. And they came up with an idea. I'm going to make a billion dollars off of this. We were at the American Girl Store. 
And I'm seeing these little girls, and they're cute. And I said, what if we could make a doll baby just to give mothers kind of a, an, an, you know, girls a little idea of what it's like to be a mother? I said, what if we could make a doll baby that was actually able to, to wet itself? And Anna and Madison said, oh, they have them. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. You pour some water into that doll baby and then you squeeze it and then water comes out. I'm talking about why don't we make a baby that actually has kidneys, okay, that can actually drink water and produce urine. Could we do that? You know what? We couldn't do that. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are complex beings and we contributed nothing to ourselves. And we walk around as though we are something when in reality, all we are is dust shaped by God and every breath that we breathe is a gift from Him. We cannot shake our fist at God and say, why have you done this? Or what are you doing? And Paul says, who, are, who do you think you are to say to God that you can't choose some and not others? But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one for honor and another for dishonor? I have never seen the guy spinning the wheel and pumping the thing and forming the clay into a vase and hear, heard the clay speak back and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? I want to be bigger. I want to be rounder. I want to be more narrow at the neck. No, the clay doesn't talk. He's the potter, we are the clay. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured, uh-oh, here comes the hard part, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. This verse says, that the reason why these people were, cre were created was for damnation. That is an even tougher doctrine to swallow. It's the doctrine of reprobation. Now, let me show you some verses. I did not put them on the outline, but I want you to turn in your Bible and look at them because they're really big pills to swallow. Start in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16 and verse 4. Proverbs 16, 4. Now, I used to read through the book of Proverbs every month. I never even saw this verse until after I came to understand the doctrines of grace. And I have to admit, when I read it for the first time, it disturbed me. But this is the truth. Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Again, you might not like it initially, but it's pretty easy to understand. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Way in the back of your Bible. I'll begin reading in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, well... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
They, that is the disobedient from verse 7, they, unbelievers, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Who made this appointment? God. John chapter 12, verses 36 to 40. Jesus gives an open call of salvation. And he says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. No amount of miracles will produce faith. Why? So that the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke rhetorically. Lord, who has believed our report? Implied in that is no one. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, no one. Therefore, they, the people that Jesus gave this open invitation to, they could not believe. Why could not they? Why couldn't they believe? Because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. Who, the devil? Well, Scripture does teach that the devil has blinded their eyes, but that's not who it's talking about here. He has blinded their eyes. Who is he? Is, they, is that referring to themselves? No. It's referring to God. God, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, and lest they should understand, and lest their hearts should turn, so, so that I should heal them. And you might look at this and say, Wow, this is, this is just getting tougher and tougher and tougher to swallow. It should bring you to the point, not where you stick your finger in the face of God and say, why did you do this? But it should drive you to your knees. No, not to your knees, but it should drive you to your face and say, God, why in the world did you ever choose me? Oh, God, thank you. Out of millions lost. Why would you set your affection on me before time began? It should bring you to tears. It should bring you to the end of yourself. It should not make you prideful. It should not make you arrogant. One of the things that I think is most dangerous about being a Calvinist is that as soon as somebody becomes a Calvinist, all of a sudden... They perceive themselves to be more intelligent than those that are not Calvinist and they think that they've had some things revealed to them that other people don't understand and they walk around in a very cocky and arrogant way. Spurgeon called it the cage stage. Here's what Spurgeon said about it. He says, when someone comes to understand the doctrines of grace, you ought to lock them away in a cage for a year because they're no good to God or to themselves. That should not be our response. We should come to the conclusion that God is merciful and that for some reason he has chosen us and we should bow before him and give thanks. A couple of more verses before we go to application. Acts 13, 48, Paul is preaching to the Jews in every city that he goes into and they are rejecting. But now the Gentiles hear the word and they receive the word. And in 1348, it says, now when the Gentiles heard this, that is the gospel, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord and who was saved. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
Who believed? Those that were appointed unto eternal life. Who made the appointment? God. John 15, 16. I know it's speaking of Jesus and the apostles, but the principle is true. You did not choose me. But wait a minute. John and Peter, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, they chose to leave. Matthew chose to leave the tax office and follow him. Yes, they did choose to follow Christ, but their choice was not the primary choice. Their choice was predicated upon Christ's choice. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should be, remain. That whatever you ask the Father, he may give you. All right. This has been very theological, but I want to make it practical as we close out now. Number one, practical application. Because the doctrine of election is true, we should be more zealous and more confident and more bold in our, in our evangelism. What I mean by that is this. The person that really understands that God has a people out here that he has chosen will love to do evangelism and they will love to share the gospel. Why? Because we know that God has a people and that they need to hear the word. And so we preach the gospel <clears throat> to every creature knowing that the elect will respond. Now, some people will say, well, Calvinism really kills evangelism because it's already been determined who will be saved. <clears throat> Why should you preach the gospel? That's what William Carey ran into when he wanted to be the first missionary to India. And he stood up in England and he said, I feel called to go and preach the gospel in India. And Carrie was a Calvinist. He was in a room full of Calvinists. And when he stood up and made that proclamation, one man said, sit down, young man. God wants to save the heathen in India. He'll do it without your help or mine. <clears throat> that old man did not understand the doctrines of grace. He understood hyper-Calvinism or fatalism. And that's wrong. Because the same God that ordained the means ordained the end by which the means would be accomplished. And that means is us spreading the word. You see, if God wanted to, he could save his elect by just naturally putting in our hearts and our minds an understanding of the gospel and a hunger for it. When you leave here today, and I've been preaching so long, this is especially true. When you leave here today, you are going to be hungry and you are going to want to eat. How do you know that you want to eat? Because God has designed you that way. Is God not capable of placing within your spirit a desire for himself and a hunger for him and the knowledge of it, just like he gives you innately other knowledge? Could he not give you spiritual knowledge as well? Yes, he certainly could. But God doesn't do that. The means by which God saves his people is through giving us the ministry of reconciliation. He has chosen to use other people. He could have written it across the sky. He could have put a device in your ear where you hear it. He could have done any different means he wanted to to bring his elect to salvation. But he has chosen to use people to save people. And that being the case, we need to be bold and zealous and confident in evangelism. Go out and tell everybody. Now, only the elect will hear and only the elect will come. But tell everybody. Calvinism does not kill evangelism. As a side note, the four individuals that I know on planet Earth who are most evangelistic, 
who share the gospel most consistently, men that put me to shame in terms of their love for the lost, number one, Pastor Paul Fry. He's out on the streets all the time spreading the gospel. He works with our Grace and Truth Church as an elder up there in Yonkers. Number two, Gary George from Massachusetts. Every Saturday of life, he is out pleading with the lost in the Worcester Common and in Southbridge, Massachusetts, for them to come to Christ. Number three, Bill Welzine in Key West, Florida, goes out three times a week, stands on the open pier, and pleads with people to come to Christ. And number four, our very own Peter Nicotra. Those four men are the greatest champions that I have ever known in my life of evangelism. And all four of them are dyed-in-the-wool, blue-nosed, unashamed, five-point Calvinists and believe in the sovereignty of God. So, evangelism is not killed by Calvinism. Be evangelistic. And if you say, well, God's going to save who he's going to save, I don't have to share, it just means you don't understand the doctrines of grace. We, as Calvinists, should be more evangelistic. Here's number two. Do not ever, ever ask the question, I wonder if that guy is one of the elect. I wonder if that lady is one of the elect. Look, we have no God. And so we preach the gospel to everyone. The elect are the ones who will hear and respond positively, but we have no idea who we are. We are never in Scripture commanded to figure out whom God has elected. Again, Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Election in the Bible is to bring glory to God and to show his sovereign control and to emphasize his purpose above all else. It is not for us to sit back and to wonder, hmm, I wonder if that's one of the elect. Here's application point number three, most importantly. I've said it already, but I'll repeat it. And that is, if you are saved, if you are born again, if you are one of the elect, it should drive you to a state of humility where you say, Lord, thank you for saving me. I don't know why you did it. I don't deserve it. Many are called, but few are chosen. But Lord, I thank you that I am one of the ones that you called. And for you to say that you chose him, first of all, flies in the face of Scripture. Show it to me in the Bible where you are the one that made the primary choice. I think this is evidence sufficient but if you've got another argument, I'm not being, I'm not being, um, I'm not trying to intimidate in any way. I sincerely mean that I would like to see what that argument is in the face of Romans 9:18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. It's clear that he's the one that makes the choice. Jonah 2:9, salvation is of the Lord. But in light of that, in light of that, it ought to do something to our hearts, and that is to make us glorify God and to praise Him and soften our hearts and thank Him that we were among those that He chose. And finally, if you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, you've really got me worried now. I mean, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? I mean, do you mean that I could go my whole life and believe in Jesus, but if I'm not one of the elect, that means I'm not saved? No, I'm not saying that at all. That's, that's it. a gross misrepresentation of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, if you are one of the elect, you will be drawn to Christ and you will believe in Christ. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one that comes to me I will by no means cast out. And if you come to Christ on his terms for salvation, and he turns you away, well then you'll be the first. 
We come to Christ for salvation. He saves us. And that's how we know if we're the elect. Are you saved? Well, then you're one of the elect. Are you not? Come to Christ. If you come to Christ, you are one of the elect. How do you know? Because my sheep hear my voice, and they will come. Don't sit around and ask yourself, am I one of the elect? Rather, you should look to the scripture, read the Bible, read it as a helpless, hopeless, hell-deserving sinner, and say, as I read it, I believe this. Jesus Christ came and died for me, and Jesus loves me. Father, I believe in your Son. Father, forgive me of my sins. If you pray that prayer and you believe that in your heart, believe that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is not some sort of a club that you need a password to get into. There's an open invitation for all to come. Jesus said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Are you unsaved today? Forget about election. You're unsaved today? Come to Jesus Christ and be saved. The offer is open to all. Who will hear that? Who will hear that? Those whom the Spirit touches in their heart. All right, that is our message today. Thank you again for being so very, very attentive uh, to the preaching of the Word. I would ask that our ushers would come forward at this time. And Frank, if you would please come and assist us in, um, in a hymn. Again, thank you for your attentiveness in the Word today. And Clinton, if you would, would you... Uh, Give God thanks for these gifts which we're about to receive. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.